0: Welcome to Intriguing Interviews, where fascinating people share captivating stories. I'm Chad Elliott, your tour guide on this audio hitchhiking journey. Today, we'll meet Ja Hollander, the leader of a very controversial therapy movement. To prepare for that psychological whirlwind, I'll share with you the shocking lengths I'll go to for personal growth. Plus, I'll give you step-by-step instructions on how to give a woman the most boring date of her life. September of 2003, and I'm in a week-long personal development retreat. It's the second day of the retreat, which is held in the foothills of Northeast Georgia. And all 16 of us students cram ourselves into a van like a bunch of sardines. At 18 years old, I'm easily the youngest student in the retreat, since most guys my age are too busy thinking about what girl they'll take to the prom or where they'll go to college to even consider signing up for a week-long retreat to discover who they really are, to confront their inner fears, and to learn to embrace life. But I was homeschooled, so I'm a teensy bit different than your average 18-year-old kid. I've already jumped out of a plane, hitchhiked across the country, and done a vow of silence all in the name of growing as a person and changing my life. The other students in the retreat tolerate me with the strange sort of semi-affection you feel toward those pop songs you hated growing up but that remind you of your youth. Regardless, I'm excited to feel like part of a group, and I admire one of the guys in the retreat named Darren. Darren is in his thirties and seems to be everything I want to become. Smart, charming, confident. Darren is financially successful and it sounds like women can't get enough of him. Honestly, I don't even understand why he's in the retreat at all. His life seems perfect, but he is. And we're all crowded into this van as part of a special surprise field trip. A field trip that's supposed to help us shed our insecurities. But now that the retreat leaders have told us where we're going in this van, with each mile that passes, the insecurity and tension build. As we drive down the road, I'm surprised to see Darren looks tense. So I ask him, you're not nervous, are you? Yes, he says. I'm damn well nervous. Time passes filled with the sound of the highway, awkward small talk and nervous laughter. After an hour, we finally arrive at our destination and park outside the entrance. We file out of the van and head into the office to register for our afternoon visit. The desk clerk looks relaxed and watches us with a grin. He says, First timers, eh? That's not so bad. Once you get used to it. At last, we go outside to where there's a pool, volleyball court, hiking trails, and other leisure areas. Then we take off our clothes. We take off all of our clothes, stripping totally naked to match everyone around us at this nudist colony. It feels like that Beatles song, "Ah, look at all the naked people, frankly, I'm mostly surrounded by people I'm not interested in seeing naked. Most of them are two or three or even four times my age the atmosphere is less sexually charged than an afternoon tea party with the Queen of England. However, there are a few very beautiful women, but it's interesting to notice that the woman who grabs my attention most is the only one wearing a bikini. I guess we men are enticed by mystery. Anyway, I find that being naked in public isn't all that scary, especially when everyone else is naked too. But when I go over to the pool to visit with my hero, Darren, I'm surprised to find him practically in tears. He's not just in the pool, he's hiding in the pool so nobody can see his naked body. I laugh and shout, come on out of the pool. It's only a minute before the awkwardness goes away. Trembling with emotion, he says, no. I say, but if you stay in the pool, you'll never, he cuts me off, stop being insensitive. I'll stay in here as long as I need. It's the first time I realize that just because someone looks totally confident, it doesn't mean they are. They may be hiding behind a facade, a mask of certainty, success, and yes, clothes. When those fall away, the fear and anxiety that hide beneath the surface begin to bubble up. On a Saturday night about five years ago, I'm at home when my girlfriend at the time, Teresa, comes over. I give her a kiss and say, I want to show you something. It's really great. I take her over to the couch, pull out my tablet, and bring up a YouTube video. It shows an old American man sitting next to a young Ukrainian man in front of an audience. An interpreter sits next to the two men, interpreting after each speaks. I tell Teresa, this is the most hilarious therapy session you'll ever see. Ah, she says, staring at the screen and nodding slowly. Okay. It's fantastic, I say. This guy is named Frank Fairley. He died a few years ago. Teresa looks at me. We're watching a video of a dead therapist? I go, well, yeah, but he's so funny. Listen to the crazy suggestions he makes. Teresa watches for a moment, then says, Chad, some couples go out to dinner on a Saturday night. Some couples go on a date to see a play or a musical. I don't know of any that stay home and watch videos of dead therapists working through a Ukrainian interpreter. I go, well, yeah, but I mean, isn't, isn't it fascinating? She gives me a look born of long suffering and immense patience then says, yes, sure. I, I just want you to appreciate what an understanding and open-minded girlfriend you have. You're very lucky. For a hundred years, therapists have believed that talking about our problems, reviewing our childhood, and seeking insights into our psyche will improve our lives. But some people now say that's a bunch of BS. What if stripping naked strips away more fears than talking about your past? What if someone making fun of your weaknesses will give you more strength than you'll ever gain from a thousand insights into your id, ego, and superego? To help us uncover the secrets to what make us tick, we'll talk with Yop Hollander. Yop spent decades studying the unconventional therapist Frank Farrelly. Together, they formulated a new kind of therapy called provocative therapy. Yap believes listening to a person's tales of woe and offering unconditional support can damage the person and make their problems worse. instead, he finds that mocking a client calling them nasty nicknames and doubting everything they tell you can lead to profound and shocking changes and he'll share fascinating stories that show why that's true on our journey you'll meet a psychotic who runs an insane asylum you'll hear about a spin-off to stand-up comedy stand up tragedy and you'll Feel how embarrassing things get when a foolish podcast host agrees to record a provocative therapy session live and to act as the patient. So lie down on the couch, forget about your mother issues, and listen to the stories and insights of provocative therapist extraordinaire, Yop Hollander. First off, I'm, I'm just kind of curious if there was anything in your childhood that foreshadowed your career path, either that you would go into being a therapist or in, yeah, in particular that you would become a sort of offbeat therapist, a, a provocative therapist or coach.
1: Well, let me say, let me say this. I had a uh, cousin who studied psychology and I noticed he always had the nicest girlfriends, so that's why I decided to study psychology, too. <laughs> I like it. That's... <laughs> yeah, so that's, uh, that could be one thing. I like it. And so, yeah, fr- from the psychology studies, I found the clinical psychology most interesting, and then I became a therapist.
0: Interesting. And I know that your first experience as a therapist was working in a mental hospital. And I'm curious like, what that was like, and if you have any crazy stories to share, or just insightful stories. Well, when I
1: was working in psychiatry, I was a cognitive behavior therapist. Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't do anything really provocative uh, yet, And I was very much interested in hypnosis because basically uh, I thought our results were not as good as they should be. Most people spend a long, long time in the mental hospital. Most people didn't really seem to be changed very much when they left the mental hospital. And also when they changed to a certain extent, it was often largely due to medication, which at the time... Talking about, you know, 30, 40 years ago seemed to be mostly a subduing kind of uh, medication rather than fixing anything, basically, sort of dull the patient. And then, of course, often they would have less problems, but at
0: the same time, it didn't look very good to me and it didn't sound very good to me. I'm just kind of curious what, if you could give like a brief glimpse of like what you see there what is it what is it like my impression was always
1: that cybernetically speaking the patients were the most uh movable the most uh, volatile uh element in the in the mix which also meant that we were not influencing these people very
0: much so you're saying that the basically the patients because they had they were more flexible in what they could do they had more control, or they were more in charge of the situation.
1: Yes, and in a sense, of course, uh, that that that's
0: great. You know, people should
1: have a lot of influence on their situation. <laughs> but in another, but in another sense, uh, that meant that they were not really changing a lot.
0: So, what's what's an example of that? Like, what's a, Could you uh, give an example of like how a patient? would be sort of running the situation like that
1: well we had this um, one guy who had a uh, religious delusion you know he was very 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 religious and he um, had decided that he was an extremely bad person and he was always demanding uh, to be Uh, placed in a worse uh, ward so he was in a (laughs) you know in in a ward that was pretty open and uh, didn't have many restraints and he always he would always demand being moved to a closed ward and you know demand that he be isolated because he was he had this delusion that he was probably one of the worst people in the world who should be removed from society as as far as possible. And this was a highly intelligent person. I actually tested his intelligence because I also had intelligence tests and he tested like, I don't know, close to, I think it was close to 140 IQ, which basically made him the most intelligent person (laughs) in the whole hospital, probably including all the doctors and, and
0: psychologists how how did they try like how did you try to deal with him yeah well i i tried to deal with him at the
1: time using uh, nlp neurolinguistic programming matching his strategy Mm -hmm. so he had a certain strategy with which he used an internal mental strategy which he used to uh, solidify the idea that he was a really bad person Mm -hmm. so he would sort of visualize the bible Uh, Then he would read pieces of the Bible, you know, from memory, and then he would compare his own life and he would conclude that the distance was so great that he must be a really, really bad person. (laughs) So I tried to match that strategy. So, well, let's look at the Bible one more time and then. But you can see there's lines here, uh, there's text here, but there's also space between the lines. And if you if you look at the space between the lines, you might conclude, okay, if I look at the lines themselves, maybe I'm not s- such a good person. But if I look between the lines, <laughs> maybe I'm not as bad as I thought I was. <laughs> that's, that's pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah, so I was actually trying to match his, his strategy. and But this person was so clever, and he's just look at me and say, "Yap, listen... The thing you just said the thing you just said is a is a total mix of uh uh ultimate wisdom and and absolute craziness so it's, it's like you know i i presented him with a very fitting form that was very seductive uh for him to believe but at the same time you know his delusion of badness was so strong that uh, he thought this was crazy. So, but you can imagine a person like this, yeah, could do anything he he, he could think of basically to get to a worse war, uh, a worse uh, ward. Uh-huh. He could, you know, start shouting. He could pull out his hair. He could walk naked. Whatever he wanted. <laughs> While we were always, you know, limited. First of all, we had our social limits. Then, of course, we had our professional limits. So if you have, there's all kinds of things that you cannot do, like all kind of impulses you have that you cannot uh, express. Uh, Freud already commented on that, at great length. You know, there's lots of things that you're... Conscience, your super ego prevents you from doing. But then, now you become a professional, professional psychologist. That is a whole bunch of other things that you cannot do either because they are not professional. Uh huh. Yes. Given that situation, I had all kinds of you know uh, skill trainings, uh, and I also started working with hypnosis in the hope that that would be a better, give a better result.
0: So I'm curious, how did you how did you find provocative therapy, and, and what appealed to you about that? Uh,
1: basically, it was the sequence was like I got into hypnosis. Uh, one of the most famous hypnotherapists of the time was Milton H. Erickson from Phoenix, Arizona, mm-hmm. and Milton H. Erickson had been modeled studied by Richard Bandler and John Grinder. The founders of uh, NLP, Neuro-Linguistic Programming, and they commented, in turn, very positively on Frank Fairley, the provocative uh, therapist. Mm-hmm. So then I invited Fairley, because also somebody went to the United States and they came back with a audio tape uh, with, with which had some students of uh, Frank talking about their provocative therapy. And we were just flabbergasted. We were just going, what is this? But at the same time, we noticed that it seemed to be effective. But it was so far away from what we did and so far away from the mainstream psychotherapy that uh, it was also fascinating. Yeah. So we thought, you know, we'd like to see this uh, fairly in action. So we invited him to come over to our institute, the Institute for Eclectic Psychology in the Netherlands. And uh, so we had him for 25 years, maybe even longer, coming over to our institute yearly to teach provocative therapy. And at first, we just couldn't understand. It, It was like it was so far away from our usual way of doing therapy that we had trouble even sort of understanding what was going on but over the years we studied frank more and more and so that's why how we fa- finally came up with what we call the fairly factors which are uh, is a description basically
0: of what frank used to do how how would you define provocative therapy like what would you uh, if you were to describe it to a uh, someone who's, who's never really been exposed to it before like how would you describe it so that they could kind of gain a in glimpse of of what that i what that would be like yes
1: in in provocative therapy the patient or the client gets challenged so the rather than if you say um uh i cannot do this then a normal traditional psychotherapist or coach will say but you know let's look at what the obstacles are and probably you could overcome those and then you can do it. And I believe in you. I trust that you can, uh, and let's work on this ability of yours, right? Mm-hmm. So, and let's dive into the, all the obstacles that are, have been keeping you from this achieving this and see what we can do about, you know, changing that so you, that you can achieve that. That's the, the, the basic, sort of premise of uh, normal coaching and normal psychotherapy is change so you can achieve what you want to achieve yeah it's supportive yes supportive positive focus presupposing that you can achieve what you want to achieve and Ferry did just exactly the opposite Uh, he would say yeah well Obviously, you cannot do this uh, for this and this and this and this reason. And moreover, even if you could, it would only bring more problems. So why don't you forget about this? And lots of clients would have, well, wait a minute. You know, if this is therapy, uh, you know, who
0: needs enemies, right? So it's like, <laughs> And you have, a, uh, you have a good example in your book of a policeman. Yes.
1: But you also have that experience yourself, I think, you know, when sure. when you wanted something uh, and people told you, you cannot do this because you are too old, because you are too young, because you are too highly educated, because you're not educated enough, whatever reasons. Yeah. And then, you know, if you think back of a moment like that, you probably had this impulse, mm-hmm. well, I'll show you. Uh, we'll we'll see about that. Not everybody has that response, but many people have that res- that sort of that resistance, that protest response. Uh, in and having that protest response, they will actually find some resources in themselves that help them actually achieve that.
0: I've seen examples of the opposite too. Like I've been at. Uh, I can think of a couple of times I was at at parties and I was talking to someone and they talked about, oh, you know, I'd love to start my own business. And you say, oh, you know, you should do that. And they're like, well, I can't uh, because of this. And you're like, well, you know, here's here's a solution to that. And they're like, no, 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 no. Yeah. And I've I've seen people get progressively even like upset that solutions were being offered. They're like, no, like I cannot do that. Exactly. So the more you
1: say, yes, you can, the more they go, no, I can't um and so this policeman this was um, the uh, uh, commissioner of police in of Amsterdam which is one of the most important police positions in the Netherlands of course so he went uh, with his pension and lots of people interviewed him and finally some journalist asked him well how did you ever uh, get into policing in the first place he said well that was i'll tell let me tell you about that is i i had a uh, a friend who was in the police academy and i said oh i uh, that could be something for me too i'm i'm interested in maybe joining that academy and becoming a police officer and then my friend said well yeah you could try but your chances are very very slim because they i don't think you can get in because they have like uh, you know 600s uh, spots or two hundred spots he, he mentioned the numbers, and they have like two thousand people applying, so uh, i I don't think you even have to try and this person said, Well, we'll see about that. He literally quoted himself saying that, we'll see about that, and he was really motivated, <laughs> and like you know forty years later he he was the the head uh, the commissioner of uh, Amsterdam. He definitely proved he could be right. Yeah, you can often see lots of examples like that. We there was actually a um, a little institution uh, in Rotterdam in the Netherlands, which was totally provocative, helping really really derailed youngsters, like they were after would be and addicted uh, and deep in depth uh, and homeless, and they would. Uh, give them provocative therapy uh, and they it was also very theater oriented so they had to um, develop a stand-up tragedy so not a stand-up comedy but a stand-up <laughs> tragedy <laughs> and so they were they they were trained to give a performance where, in a funny way, they were complaining about all the things that had been done to them. Huh. So that was very funny. And uh, so I, for a while, I was in the, um, the board of trustees of this uh, institution. And we would always visit one of their locations and often meet with the, um, with the clients. And one day, this guy comes up to me. He's got these gold chains, these tattoos and everything. Uh, and I said, well, I'm Jaap and he said oh okay are you jaap hollander uh, well i was well yeah why do you want to know <laughs> because this person actually was not you know it was sort of threatening uh, uh-huh. to me He said well but are you jaap hollander uh, of the book i said yeah yeah sure that's me probably me it depends on what book but uh, <laughs> uh, he, he said yeah well that book is fantastic so then i became interested and he I said well do you do you have some experiences with provocative uh, therapy or provocative coaches, coaching that you, you know, that that you remember? So, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I have been in therapy since I was six. Sheesh. And and I, and at the time I saw him, mean, he was like, you know, I don't know, 22 or something or 25. Wow. I don't know. Since I was six and I have had so many psychologists and social workers and have always had the idea seriously I would go I am nothing and I can do nothing It was like a mantra to him right I, I am nothing and I can do nothing uh-huh. and always all everybody was saying no 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 you know we believe in you. you you can do things and you are okay as a person you just have some you know negative behaviors but as a person you're you're, you're good. And I always thought, well, these people are, they, they don't know anything. You know, they don't, they know nothing. They don't, they don't understand me and you know, they don't understand life they, you know, I don't know why i even talked to these people. Hmm. So, so then I came here, this is the institution I was talking about. Mm-hmm. And so I came in, you know, I was basically looking for a place to sleep, uh, and they were talking to me about, you know, what's, what's going on with you. And he said, well, yeah. So I started, he started doing his thing. He said, well, I always have this problem that I feel like, you know, I am nothing and I can do nothing. And they were saying to me, well, yeah, you don't have to tell us. Uh, as, you know, as soon as you came in the door, I, I was talking to my colleague. I said, if I ever seen a guy who is nothing and can do nothing, it's this guy here. This guy is the ultimate uh, nothingness and, and uh, uh, incompetency um in the flesh and he said you know <laughs> i was thinking well hey uh, so when are you guys are you guys going to determine that for me you guys are going to say what i am and what i'm not uh, and they were yeah sure i mean if it's that obvious as in your case you know how can we not say it so we'll, we'll see about that you know uh i'm always it's me who determines that <laughs> said well yeah well what can you determine you know if you can do nothing and if you're nothing and nothing cannot determine anything (laughs) so he said well then i go well wait a minute you know what's happening here (laughs) Uh, and so um he said that was a big turnaround for me Uh and that's in that sense it's all very simple really yeah although in later years we have uh, also you know started distinguishing between protest, resistance, uh, and acceptance, uh, because in this even in this case, you know, if this person would really accept that they are nothing and they can do nothing, they wouldn't have any problems
0: either. Well, I'm am curious about that. Uh, a couple of days ago, in order to prepare for this, I, I tried describing provocative therapy to someone. Uh, this person deals with uh, quite a quite a few self esteem issues. And if or if she said, like, I just feel worthless and I, I don't feel like I have value. And the other person said, yeah, you're worthless. Like, you don't have value. Like, um, and and yeah. she would. That's putting it mildly. <laughs> right. Is that she would tend to collapse and just like fall into tears and go like, you're right. Yeah, the provocative therapist would say, "Well, yeah, uh, of course you're sad about that. I would be sad if I was
1: wordless." <laughs> well, is so that's that's an appropriate feeling. That's a good <laughs> feeling.
0: That's a correct feeling. Well, do you if if they don't if they don't kind of fight back if they just kind of accept it but they like accept what you're saying but they're not really like okay with it and they they just like start crying that kind of thing. Does that happen or is is that does that not happen for some reason?
1: Sure, yeah. Well, I have to say, because you also always use a lot of humor and you use a lot of warmth in communicating to people, because um, it's important maybe or could be important to understand that Frank Fairley started out as a Rogerian, client-centered, classical psychotherapist, really going for, you know, unconditional positive regard no matter what you do or say you are okay
0: yeah very much the stereotypical what people would think of as a therapist when they see them on tv
1: yes exactly and that's still underneath a provocative
0: uh style of of therapy and and coaching yeah you say you say that there are three pillars that there's challenge warmth and humor and without all three of those that it doesn't work exactly exactly
1: So the warmth and the humor already sort of um, make it less likely that somebody will collapse. But if they do, if they, you know, so if you take your friend as an example, uh, if she is uh, crying because she feels worthless, she still hasn't really accepted uh, being a worthless person. Because in a sense, of course, we're all worthless. I mean, you know, we we uh, get born, we live, we die, and then after a number of years, uh, people won't even remember much of us. Um, we're worm food. Yeah. So uh, if you can really accept that, so you you probably be pretty happy.
0: <laughs> so well, uh, <laughs> well. So
1: in that sense, it's a good idea. I think. There's. The, I'm. I'm not very well versed in religion but I think there's even some religions that uh, you know state that as the ultimate uh, goal to understand how small you are and how insignificant you are and how insignificant really all your strivings are Mm -hmm. and that suffering is universal so maybe this person is a perfect Buddhist
0: (laughs) Well, okay, well, that that kind of brings up the the question to me then. So, like, what is an example of someone who you worked with who rather than protesting, they accepted and their life got better because of it?
1: Yeah, so I had this one um, client who actually came in with the whole idea of, listen, I have been in therapy. Also, this person. We have a lot of people who have been in therapy before and then finally, you know, go to the provocative therapist to, you know, give it another chance. Basically, final shot. And he said, "Yeah, well, with some people. There's never a final shot. <laughs> but it's an, it's a lifelong sort of uh, sequence." Uh, but this uh, person said, "You know, I always have the idea uh, that people hate me." Uh, when I come into a room, I see people looking at me and I think they're thinking, Oh, that's this worthless guy. Look, you know, look at you know how tired and old he looks and I don't trust him. And uh, yak, 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 what a what a terrible guy. Mm-hmm. And he said, I've never been able to get rid of that idea. I know it's not true. So many therapists have told me, No, 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 it's not true. People don't think think that. Uh, that's just your projection. That's what you you just make of their looks. Uh, how do you know that they're thinking that? I said, well, somehow I have never been able to get rid of that idea. Still today, I, I don't eat lunch in the cafeteria because I, I don't want to be confronted with all these people who hate me. And so um, I said, well... Uh, have you ever considered that that's correct, You know that people do hate you? That, <laughs> actually, when you came in, uh, in my office, I thought, well, I don't know about this guy. You know? so, uh, he said, no, 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 it's not true. I said, well, how do you know that? He said, well, um, I uh, talked to uh, lots of people, even at work. And I said, well, how, how, what do you think of me? Uh, uh, and they say well no you're okay you're you're a good guy i like you i said yeah well wait a minute wait a minute this is crazy you know like you are asking these people so you are you know the most pathetic person in the workplace right so if the most pathetic person in the worst workplace asks you uh what do you think of me of course you're not gonna say what you really think of this person because, you know, you're afraid they might collapse or, you know, they might call in sick or, you know, they might even end up in psychiatry. And so they're in the psychiatry ward and it's your fault because you told him what you really thought of him. So that's, you know, of course you cannot trust that. He said, well, I can. (laughs) So he got into the resistance. But this person later actually... Uh, told me, yeah, and at one point I was thinking, uh, what if everybody hates me? Well, maybe it's not everybody, you know, maybe it's like 90% of people like me, but then there's still 10% that, you know, sort of find me okay. So maybe I shouldn't worry so much about, you know, who likes me and who doesn't. And basically if they hate me, what are they going to do? So this person was more into... um In the end, at first he had a resistance response, but after a while he got into acceptance. So, you know, so what? So that's acceptance, right? Okay, so everybody hates me. So what? So what's the problem? I mean, uh, I can still, you know, do my shopping. I can still do my work. I still have a few friends who don't
0: hate me. (laughs) So why worry? Why worry? Um, So going into like an actual session and, and what that's like, one of the things you talk about is that you use first impressions a lot, like how the client dresses, how they sit, the first words out of their mouth.
1: Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: what is a story that illustrates the importance of those things? Yes,
1: there's a lot, you know, somebody has a pattern and they cannot not do that pattern. So they, this pattern is visible in all kinds of different, ways uh how they sit down uh, the sort of contact they make with you the way they are dressed uh, people often say well you know i don't like that you guys always uh, comment on how people are dressed well think about it lots of people think well now i'm you know i'm not dressed on this like this on purpose you know just this has happened to be hanging in you in my closet and i grabbed it well first of all how did it get in the closet how do you get to your closet? And second of all, why did you grab uh, exactly that garment? So it's people think it's random, but it's really not. To give you an example, is I um, I was talking to this guy. He was uh, Indonesian. Uh, we have a lot of people from Indonesia in the Netherlands that came after the Second World War. They were basically, you know, soldiers in uh, the Dutch service and when indonesia became independent they were threatened so they were repatriated actually it was a, that's what it was called to the netherlands so this person um is obviously from indonesian uh, descent um and he is wearing a very expensive watch and he's wearing these bright red uh, shoes really strange bright red shoes later on it turned out it was his daughter's shoes but he couldn't find his shoes (laughs) and he he obviously had the same size (laughs) so he he was wearing those shoes but (laughs) so i was looking at this well you know the 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 top clothing and the watch was all sort of spelled all you know success money um traditional you know mainstream values and then there were this red these red shoes which were totally crazy so I told him, Well, I think if I look at you, I can see a really, really uh, split up person, you know, a really person has two sides that are totally in conflict with each other. And he sort of stared at me and said, Well, how did you know? <laughs> so it, wasn't very, it wasn't very difficult. Uh, so it turns out this person. You know, I made a lot of jokes about the Indonesian revolution and stuff. And this, this person had really basic belonging issues, you know, do I belong to the Indonesian community or do I belong to Dutch society? It's, um, you know, a very uh, probably common thing, but that was the thing he was struggling with. So, but he was already expressing that so clearly and then. You know, also the first sentence people say. We have a whole thing called first sentence diagnostics, so we're really listening carefully to the first sentence. Uh So, well, Chad, what we could do? We could do a a little piece of provocative therapy with you. Sure. Sure. since we're talking anyway yeah. i mean of course i can not see you uh, so i cannot comment on your
0: clothing uh. <laughs> i uh, yeah since it's <laughs> since it's midnight over here i don't think you'd be particularly impressed but um all right but, <laughs> no, okay uh, so you know, cuz we can't see each other i didn't I, i'm not wearing a fancy suit but um yeah i all think right. that'd be great so, we could do like a short so, session yeah
1: so i you already did the first sentence saying that i would not be particularly impressed <laughs> sure um, um so well why, why did you say that would just because is, is that is that the problem is that the problem chat no I no, are not was just,
0: particularly impressed with you n- n- no I, are you sure <laughs> No, not exactly. No, Um, (laughs) not it's not exactly the problem, but it's closed, right? Well, I, I, I'm, I. That is, I mean, there, there. I mean, okay. So that is one issue that I, I think I've actually had uh, lately. Is that lately? Yes, because um, I, I have been kind of thinking about how. Well it's interesting. So like I I kind of uh I did like a DNA test and I found all these siblings that I didn't know I had and I I found out who my father was like all this stuff because I was born through artificial insemination and and there's like other stuff going on and it kind of like when you have to sort of introduce yourself to your family for the first like first time for these people who don't know you it it brings up insecurities about who you are and you know i'm i've lived a very strange life yeah and uh so i i've i'm I'm, honestly in a lot of ways i'm a weird person you know i watch videos of therapy for fun uh so and and i i have noticed like some certain feelings of like shame and that kind of thing coming up about just myself hmm all right so um that's a
1: lot of text uh (laughs) Chad, yeah, (laughs) that's a lot of text. But uh, so basically you're saying, I don't know who I am. So that's why I'm insecure when I meet people. uh, Because how can I be there when I don't even know who I am? And I'm very much ashamed of that. Uh, so I'd love to impress people, but how? <laughs> well, no, I don't know. How can you impress <laughs> <I don't> people <laughs> when you're like a phantom, right? You you don't really even exist. So people go, well, was was Chad in the room? I don't know. Did did you guys see him? I saw something, some shadow passing through the room, but. I, I, but i don't know if that was chad i
0: I mean i don't know if i would say that like (laughs) i'm a pretty dominating personality in a room because i teach classes and all this you are you (laughs) are well
1: when you teach classes right you know when you are in your role you can impress people
0: fair enough yes or hopefully you try anyway uh, you don't always succeed
1: yes you try no right so but uh so you understand that you don't know who you are so why is that a problem?
0: Uh, well, it was actually, you know, it was nice to find out who my father was, because that did kind of fill in a bit of f- feeling like, in a, a, of identity, sort of like finding out uh, a bit of of that side of the family. So I, I, f- I feel like I know who I am in a lot of ways. Hmm. Okay. So that's not a problem. I... <laughs> It's still, I'm still working through all these things, I think. Okay, well, that's good. So you're working through things. Uh Um,
1: That's so, well, I'm very happy that you're working through them. So we don't have to talk about that, right? Okay. So do you have any other problems?
0: Uh, Well, you know, something I was thinking of recently is, is that I tend to uh get focused on like one thing to the exclusion of others like for instance i i tend to focus on work and and don't prioritize spending time with friends and and doing hobbies and even within work i tend to focus on like i'll I'll get focused on like one aspect like one project and not put as much attention on other projects yeah so you make choices
1: yes (laughs) 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 So, what's wrong with that
0: that other that other things that need attention don't get enough attention like I don't pay enough attention to to friends or spend enough time with them, and I just uh it can be a bit draining, but don't you have some basically have a lot of you know dull,
1: boring friends that are not that interested and you know to go, uh, well, I don't really want to spend time with them." And, I don't really want to focus on them i have these sort of you know uh, unworthy friends that you know they just drain your energy basically you know, get away from me
0: uh, that's that, a very natural
1: that, feelings if you if you have that kind of friends right i mean
0: they're they're very nice <laughs> people um
1: yeah they, they might be nice people but are they interesting people chad um. A lot, yeah. A lot. Somebody, some can be very nice, but it can be very dull, <laughs> and it can be nice people, but always draining your energy, complaining about everything, you know, not doing anything worthwhile or interesting with their life, and then you have to sit with them, right, and listen to them, and give them attention. My God, you already have all these podcasts where you have to give, to give people attention. You always have these classes where you have to give people attention. <laughs> You know, fuck you! I don't <laughs> have time for you, you so-called friend.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, right? Honest, I mean, it de- <laughs> um, it depends on the person. Uh, <laughs> I'll be yeah, honest. right. It depends on the person. That's what I'm saying. It depends <laughs> on them, but they don't do their job right. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, so- you're, you're <laughs> dependent on them to be interesting. <laughs> I mean, yeah. In some ways, that's true. But I, a number of my friends are very interesting, and I'll admit some people are they are they really though. Shh. So name name one interesting
1: friend. Uh, you don't have to know. Yeah, but Randall. That. Randall. Say the names of Randall. He's interesting. Interesting guy. What makes him interesting?
0: Well, like he uh, is is like a X. I have no idea how many degrees black belt he. Um, grew up in uh, what's the name of that city that's so full of crime right now um you grew up in yeah really
1: okay here's an american person who can fight and uh who lives in a place with lots of crime i mean (laughs) that's basically the definition of an american
0: person right (laughs)
1: how how special is that
0: well now he doesn't live there anymore he lives in seattle now he doesn't even live there anymore (laughs) Okay so but- so
1: he has to he, 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 you have to be interested in where he used to live but he doesn't live there anymore
0: well he's got lots of interesting stories interesting stories yeah about the past you mean yes yeah
1: but see you already ha- you already have the podcast for the interesting stories right <laughs> that's fair yeah sure <laughs> so what can he add to that and then You know, he tells you these stories, they're really interested, but now you
0: have no podcast. I'm not sure I catch you there. There's still the podcast. Okay, so
1: normally you have a podcast, somebody Uh tells you an interesting story, like me, for instance, and then at the end of the conversation, you have a nice podcast, you can broadcast, and people will be impressed, right, by the beautiful podcasts (laughs) you do. If you talk to this friend... He tells you interesting stories. Okay, great. But where's the podcast? How can you impress other people with that? <laughs> wow. Well, so well, basically, that's really uh, podcasting, really podcasting is the
0: better friend, right? God. Okay, well, that's...
1: Yeah, God, I'm gonna... God, God, God could be a good friend if he told you interesting
0: stories that you could then uh, podcast. <laughs> um the the funny thing is i i almost invited randall to be a guest on the podcast so (laughs)
1: okay good now now you're talking yeah
0: (laughs) all right so let's let's cut it there so just so that we can i i have no problem i'm like i'm i'd be happy to go further but i would like to yeah go into the description of some of what you did um so and actually one of the things i think it ties into because it's interesting like and i'll kind of describe the experience for me for people who are losing like it's there's like a combination of like um confusion at certain points confusion yeah i noticed that yeah and uh there's a certain vulnerability especially when like you say things that frankly are you know are actually things i thought that you don't really want to admit uh that you think um -hmm. and uh and just kind of it's like seeing yourself very, like nakedly. Uh, it's it's very interesting. Um, so I mean, what's interesting too is so so going back to kind of you and like what you're doing. Uh, I know you you say a lot of therapists are gratitude addicts, and one of the things with this is that you you may not get thanked for for this right away that you know
1: certainly not right away
0: yeah uh so could you could you describe a a few of the the techniques that you were were using there let me see um so i well so i i can maybe try and help so one of the things that uh you emphasize as a as a linchpin of provocative therapy is that the problem is not a problem and the solution is a problem uh Mm -hmm. would you say that you use that quite a bit there yes absolutely so i would say
1: okay so you can be sort of insecure and sort of ashamed when you you know meet people uh and has to do with not really knowing exactly who you are. And then I go, well, that's logical. You know, if you, that's, that's a, um, an understandable and a, an adequate response to if you don't know who you are, then how can you be certain about yourself if you don't even know who you are, right? So I, I have a line of reasoning uh, and a position that says these feelings are correct. Yeah. So the problem is not a problem. The problem is the correct feeling. Of course, I'm presupposing that you don't know who you are. So I hope to get some protest uh, sure. response to that. I think I got that too. So but I do know who I am. So that's one thing. And then you know, not giving enough attention to your friends. I go well. Yeah, that's that's good because uh, you, it's better to do podcasts and have contact with friends.
0: <laughs> All right, and and so actually, kind of connected to that, I, I, you didn't quite give me a label, but there was there's almost there was kind of an element of of labeling in there, I think, and and it's interesting because in like traditional therapy, like people try to avoid labels, uh, but you will intently we'll try and label people as like like with uh some examples i've heard from you is like the crazy old uh, crazy old witch uh the last shy woman uh you had one that's a female atlas uh, atlaska yeah Uh, i would call you the shadow podcaster (laughs) it's the shadow (laughs)
1: podcaster is he there is he not we don't know but he's
0: podcasting (laughs) god (laughs) Glad, glad that this is going to be available for everyone to hear. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I saw the shadow pass by. It even helped actually, me
1: set up my equipment. <laughs> could
0: you, could you give an example of uh, a time that that you, just actually labeling someone was really all it, what you needed to do? Like where, where yeah, you yeah, gave yeah. a label and it worked really well. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so we, we call that label the nickname. It's also like a little di- diagnosis, but it's also uh, like come you can come back to it. So if I if you did another podcast with me, I could say, oh, it's a shadow podcasting has arrived. Podcaster has arrived again. I I thought <laughs> I saw you floating through the air here, but I wasn't quite sure. Uh, so then I would re- reactivate this con- con- conversation immediately. But I have one really, really interesting case. Uh, this, this was when we just, we'd seen Frank Fairley a few times and my colleague Jeffrey Weinberg and I decided we're going to teach this uh, material. So we had some tryout workshops. And um, one of the first people we saw was somebody, you know, basically like so many people, working too much, you know, taking everything up on her shoulders and working and working and working and not, you know maybe a little bit similar to you not getting around to the children enough and friends enough and other you know personal interests and i had no idea what to do i i was totally sort of knock out i i had no text i had no interventions and i told him i have no idea what to say now and she said, yeah, that happens a lot <laughs> to me <laughs> and that's all when, I, when I say my problems. And um, I said, well, but I had one thing, and that was the nickname. So I said, well, I'm, I'm going to call you Atlaska, the female form of Atlas. You know, Atlas, the famous, uh, you know, statue where Atlas is carrying the world on his uh, shoulders. And you are the female Atlas, you are Atlaska, the the woman who carries the whole world on her shoulders. And well that's the only thing I can think of right now. I said, okay, okay. <laughs> so that's I, I I personally consider that session as a total failure because here I am supposed to teach the stuff, right? And I can't even do it with this person. So um, you know, I didn't feel very good about that fortunately it was called a tryout so i had some leeway there so the next time we teach the same workshop like half a year later or something who's in the audience who's in the group that same person that same woman (laughs) and i was so surprised to see her i you know because i you know considered that i myself to have done a very bad job with her the first time I said, "Well, I'm sort of surprised to see you after our, you know, first session." Oh, she said, "That worked so well, you know. For months, I be going, I am not Alaska." I don't want to be. I'm no, no, <laughs> Alaska, no more. People ask me, no, no, I'm not Alaska. I'm not going to do it. And she said, it was amazing. You know, I, I couldn't get rid of that name. It was always in my mind. And, you know, I changed so many things, so many things I don't do anymore. Everything I talk to you about is solved." I said, wow, that's very interesting. <laughs> so, that, so that's, that's um know really really drove home to me the you know the importance of that nickname Mm -hmm. and and how how much it can do and you know whenever we get the chance these days in provocative coaching we will always present a nickname Uh, we can might even change it uh Uh, it doesn't really that matter that much but it's like a you know
0: like a a short code for you know a whole approach yeah and and One of the things that I I feel that that kind of ties into is because you talk about it's that people need to view the the problem as something they need to internalize the problem. Basically, they can't view it as something outside of themselves. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I feel that, that, you know, once when you use a label, it kind of helps make that part of the person. Why is it that you need to have the person internalize the problem that you can't do something externally? And what does that mean?
1: yeah so very simple if somebody says i I have a very difficult boss and you are talking to them right now there's nothing you can do about that boss right uh and also uh my philosophy and you know together with me i think most therapists and and coaches is, is what they call primary control secondary control primary control is the circumstances you are uh, in Mm -hmm. and you are in the circumstances with this difficult boss. Yeah. There's not much you can do about that, but you do have secondary control. You can uh, influence how you respond to that, how you feel about that, how you act uh, in that situation, how you think what your whole mindset is. You have a lot of control about that. So, that's why we always go very simple. Also, most provocative procedures are really not that complicated. Maybe the total package is complicated, but you know, one by one, they're very simple. Uh, so, so okay, so you have a difficult boss. Uh, so what uh, is your problem with that? You know, what kind of feelings, thoughts, mindsets, uh, responses does this? Um, difficult boss um, uh, bring you to 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 experience and then they say well you know as soon as he comes in the in 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 the room I feel irritation okay good so you feel irritated when he comes in the room which is perfectly normal if you have an irritating boss right if you wouldn't be irritated then you would have a real problem so then we're all talking about the irritation now and not about the difficult boss anymore. Mm-hmm. And the irritation is something that you can change something in.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and which I think is one of and the... And of
1: course, maybe the difficult boss, you could also change something eventually <laughs> by finding another job, of course, and then maybe with a better boss. But immediately right now, uh, you want to do something with that irritation.
0: Yes. And, and I think that's one of the things that, that provocative therapy has in common with the other typical forms of therapy is that uh, any of them would say like it it has to be an internal change it can't be about the external world
1: yeah and also uh provocative uh, therapy and provocative coaching uh, doesn't really work if you focus it on external external things i mean if you would say well i feel sometimes i feel a bit insecure because i don't really know where i'm coming from uh, and i didn't know my father for a long time well that's not knowing your father for a long time uh, before that's an external circumstance right that's something that happened to you Uh, if i focus my challenges on that it's not going to do much i say oh well that's great if you don't know your father you know then you have a total freedom to fill in whoever you want to be uh it's not the same because it's like um well it's 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 not likely to get the same response
0: it's hard to relate to it's like yeah you you just okay that's kind of your opinion versus being like you should feel that way
1: yeah and it's not that
0: difficult to
1: go from external to internal either in your conversation
0: all you have to ask is what does that do to you so I, I think what you're just saying ties in with that a uh, priority that you say in, in provocative therapy is finding the core issue, finding what is the, uh, true pattern the person needs to work on. If someone has like a bad boss, that's not necessarily like a pattern in their life, but if they get upset with their boss and they get upset with this other person, they get upset with like, that is more taking it in. And so what, what is a what is a core pattern or the essence of a problem, really? Yeah, well, so you already described
1: it <clears throat> very uh, accurately. a um, A core pattern is a pattern that is comes back in lots of different situations, and a, a very strong core pattern comes back in all situations uh, because that's sort of like a basic mindset you always bring with you. And that's um, more interesting to challenge uh, because that will have more impact. So if you can work with a core pattern, you are helping somebody to change something very basic uh, about themselves. So that will be beneficial if the core, core pattern has lots of you know problematic consequences, then you can help a person change make a change that will be beneficial in very many different situations in their lives so that that's um that's one one reason also people tend to respond a bit stronger to challenges on their core patterns than uh
0: on challenges on side issues mm-hmm. sort of a different question which is just i'm curious what uh, cause you, you know, you've been a therapist for a long time and worked with lots and lots of people and you're still at it. Like, what is it both about doing this in general and like provocative therapy specifically? What is it that keeps you excited about it? What is it that you love about it? So
1: you are in a, and you want to go to B and you can't. There's obstacles. Um, You really, really would love to go to B, uh, but you're stuck in A. So I listen to you, and I see some possibilities of things that I can offer you which will help you get to B. And that's basically the whole thing that's exciting about uh, coaching and therapy, that you can help people go where they want to go, that you can help people you know, do what they want to do and be who they want to be. And if you see that happen, that's a, uh, you know, a great process to behold. And it's always impressive. And it's it's always
0: interesting. Uh, When you, you know, maybe you're having like a, a bad day or something. Is there like a client you think back on that you're like, you know, that that's why I do this. Or like, that's what keeps me going. Or that's why. That's why I love what I do. Like, is there someone, or uh, maybe there are a bunch, but is there someone who you can think of as an example of like, I'm, you know, because I help that person, like, I just feel good about myself that I, you like to remember it?
1: Yeah, some favorite clients. Just let me. Yeah, there's this one lady that comes to mind. I think I've also written about her. Mm-hmm. She was a team leader and she felt very insecure. This was also because the team she was the leader of had voted her out. So they <laughs> came together without her presence. Uh, and everybody voted, do we want to keep her as the team leader? <laughs> and I think about six out of seven voted for not having her as the team leader. And then with that, they went to her boss. Uh, so her boss was ready to give her a new team. Uh, and her boss knows me so she her boss sent her to me to prepare for the new team because she was feeling very insecure now you Mm -hmm. would think that would be um a natural reaction you know very obvious (laughs) but the strange thing is no 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 that's not that's not it there must be something deeper (laughs) okay uh so so i i asked her where she was from and she was from a certain city in the netherlands where they used to make oak furniture and i said well now that's well so that's now i understand why you are so insecure because you're from this in this city you know and this this they used to use use a certain lie to to make that (laughs) you know oak furniture to sort of bleach it and that lie would then sink into the uh, into the earth, and it would mix with the groundwater, and then the cows would drink that water, and so all the um, uh, crops would have that uh, lye water, and then your mother would eat that, and eventually that lie would <laughs> end up in her breasts, right, when she was feeding you. As it does, and if there's Anything, anything in the world that make, can make a person insecure, uh, <laughs> it's this, uh, this special lie. I mean, it's, it's the insecure uh, uh, compound, uh, most insecure-making compound has ever been. So that's why you are so insecure. She said, well, well, wait, wait, wait. So you are saying, I shouldn't go for the deeper causes. And no, 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 we should, because that's only the lie, right? What other industries were there in your home city? Because maybe you're also very aggressive. That's from some other camp. Maybe they were, you know, using a certain fertilizer, right? He said, "Oh, well, wait a minute. No, 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 no. So, so I should sort of, you know, I, I, I get you. You know, you, you say focus on the new team." He said, "Well, yeah, if you don't feel too insecure for that. But I, by, the way, <laughs> by the way, by the way, by the way, this, you know, insecurity might also be a signal." that being a leader is not the right position for you oh. so how about cleaning have you ever thought about cleaning I mean, oh. or have you ever thought about reception you know it's like reception is also <laughs> nice You know, people come in and you smile and you tell them where to go it's a great job so said so no no i am a leader yeah i say okay so you want to be a leader i understand that <laughs> but you know and many people do i mean it's it's, it's great but You know, maybe, you know, cleaning, reception, administration. She said, no, 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 I am a leader. Why are you a leader? Well, I'll tell you why I'm a leader. And she was talking and talking and her whole vision and her whole motivation. And she was having this really, really, she was totally on fire with why she was a leader for, I don't know. I I didn't say anything anymore. I just let it run. (laughs) She was like... Ten minutes. That she gave this enormous speech. Why she was the leader? So I said, "Well, okay. Well, why don't we? Why don't we leave the session for, this for today?" Yeah, that's. You're yeah, right. We'll leave it right here. So, so her boss said, "What did you do to this lady?" Said, well, it talks about leadership. I was really happy that you know I had been, as far as I can say, instrumental in sort of keeping this leader for this institution because i really do think that she was a good leader and also you know by these sort of simple few simple moves get her in touch with these really really strong inner resources
0: Would like to learn more about Jaap Hollander and about provocative therapy and coaching? Visit the website for the Institute for Eclectic Psychology at www.iepdoc.nl, or buy a copy of his entertaining and fascinating book, *Provocative Coaching: Making Things Better by Making Them Worse*. Next time on Intriguing Interviews, how does a lonely, one-eyed kid with a huge attitude problem, a suicidal mother, and acne so bad he wears a paper bag over his head go on to become the most popular dance teacher in the country? We'll find out when I talk with Rick Archer, the legendary owner of Houston's SSQQ Dance Studio. In part one of my multi-part interview with Rick, he'll share horror stories from his youth that make every geek in every 80s movie seem like they had it easy. He'll share the story of how he was stabbed in the eye, the story of how he saved his mother's life as a child, twice, and the story of how hitching a ride in a limousine while on a camping trip lost him all of his friends. Those and many other surprise twists next time on Intriguing Interviews.